Well, good morning. We want to welcome each of you here today. We also want to welcome those who are listening online. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been on a high since Easter week, this whole week. A little tired, but on a complete high. Well, we want to invite you all to stand this morning as we begin our time this morning in worship, preparing our hearts for communion this morning, um, and listening to his words. So just want to welcome you all.
Jesus is definitely worthy of our praise. I hope you all had a great Easter week, friends. Uh, what a great time it was celebrating Christ's death and resurrection last week, and we had just a tremendous Easter Sunday morning. And uh, today, we're going to have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table together once again and celebrate communion. Uh, and again, this week especially, it's so great to, to think about what communion means after just having celebrated uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You know, it's easy for us to get excited and, and all hyped up about those great holiday weekends that, that represent, you know, the, the ultimate joy of our salvation. And, and now we find ourselves again back in a normal Sunday morning. But for us as followers of Jesus, there's really no such thing as a normal Sunday morning. Uh, every, every day and every Sunday especially is an opportunity for us to worship the one who lives, the one who reigns, and the one who has brought us from death to life. And so we're going to remember and celebrate that together today as we take communion. I wanted to read for you a great passage uh, I came across this week from Psalm 32. King David, and, and it's a great passage because, you know, David turns to the Lord uh, looking for the hope of forgiveness. And, and what he is speaking of here really anticipates what we have experienced in its fullness through Jesus' death on the cross. Listen to the words of King David here and, and, and be thinking about what these words mean in light of what we know through the cross of Jesus Christ. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's speaking of the guilt, the weight of his sin, and feeling God's heavy hand of, of his, his Holy Spirit's conviction in his life. But then David goes on. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't that awesome? David confessed his sins to the Lord, his, his transgressions, his rebellion against God, and in that confession, he received the forgiveness of sin. And friends, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ and the saving work, the saving grace that he accomplished for, our, for us on the cross, uh, we know that same reality. We know what it is to have the, the weight of our guilty consciences lifted. We know what it is to have our transgressions and our sins, our guilt and our shame washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we celebrate communion here on, on Sunday mornings, when we hold that wafer in our hand, we're reminded that God in his great love for us came into this world in the form of a man so that we might know him and so that he could ultimately go to the cross to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for our sins. When we hold that cup and, and drink that juice, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us of all unrighteousness, which purifies us, which washes us white as snow. And it's all because of his great love for us. So I want to encourage us to, to reflect on these truths today, to meditate on these truths today. 
I'm going to invite one of our elders, Jake Horn, to come up and pray for our communion elements this morning. And then after Jake prays, our worship team is going to lead us in a time of uh, reflective prayer and meditation. We just want to give you an opportunity to turn your heart to the Lord this morning, to thank him for his amazing grace once again. If there are any issues in your life that you need to bring to the Lord in confession, this would be a, a great time to do that as well. Uh, if you are here today as a visitor, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your hope and trust in him for your salvation, we invite you to join us at, the, at this uh, Lord's Supper, taking communion with us today. This is a meal for all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. So Jake, would you please uh, pray for us this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for communion. We thank you for the for the symbols that we can remember, the broken body that was broken in our place, for the blood that was shed that covers our sins. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for victory over sins, victory in our lives, um, that we don't have to carry that burden anymore. We, uh, we think of this all in light of Easter as well, and, and just that the, the death and the, the uh, payment for our sins wasn't the end, but that there's victory over death as well. We thank you for the resurrection. We, we praise you for the work that you've done for each one of us. Amen. prepare your wafer, please. First Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul shares this account of the Lord's Supper. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And then if you'd prepare your cup, please. Paul goes on to say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink.
Amen. Well, again, we had a, a great Easter weekend. Uh, I hope it was a real blessing and encouragement to you. I wanted to highlight this morning some great news. We have two white roses on the platform this morning. Uh, this past Monday, I got a, a great uh, message from one of our Lakes Free families. They had invited uh, two family members to Easter Sunday last week. Uh, two family members they had been praying for for a long time and sharing the gospel with for a long time, and they were so overjoyed they wanted to let me know that Sunday afternoon after church, these two family members prayed to trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so uh, we're so excited about that. That's what, that's what it's all about. So let's give the Lord a big round of applause for their salvation this morning. <laughs> Amen. That's so good. Good news. Well, friends, uh, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John. I, I shared with our staff this week, I feel a little bit like Marty McFly in Back to the Future. You know, we just came off Easter, uh, Easter weekend celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ, and now we're actually going back in time, picking up our passage this morning after the resurrection of Lazarus. We're actually in the Gospel of John only six days away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, so we're going back in time, and then we're going to go back to the future here uh, as we continue on through our series in the Gospel of John. But uh, we're going we're gonna to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning as we look at these events that took place following the resurrection of Lazarus, this, this sixth sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, I also want to mention, too, friends, I'd uh, really appreciate your prayers this week. Right after church this morning, I'm going to be heading to the airport. I'm going to be teaching out in Oregon this coming week, uh, Monday through Friday at Ecola Bible College. And so uh, you can be praying for me. I certainly uh, appreciate your prayers for fruitful ministry there, safe travels for my family here at home while I'm away, and for our church team. And so uh, again, thank you for, uh, for your support in that. I sure appreciate uh, all, of your, all of your prayers. Well, let's come our time together to the Lord now. We'll thank him for these two lives that were changed for eternity, and uh, we'll ask his blessing as we study study his word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this great time of worship we've had. Thank you for the joy of coming in fellowship together to the Lord's table to remember your sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. We thank you for that, Lord. God, we're excited this morning for these two lives that put their trust in you this past Sunday. We thank you for the joy that that has brought into this family that has been praying and longing for these family members' salvation for so long. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue to bless that, that uh, couple. Lord, grow in their hearts, grow in their lives. Uh, may you ex help them experience the fullness of joy in all that is in you, Lord, through our salvation. And uh, God, we ask the same for us. God, continue to help us look to you, set our hearts upon you, and uh, focus our eyes on you. And uh, this morning, especially as we go back to your word in the Gospel of John, help this passage this morning, Lord, to further conform us into your will, Lord. Help us to, to see you clearly and, and help us as we look at the different examples in this passage, the different people's responses to you as our Savior, as our Lord. Uh, may their examples encourage us in the way that we live and, and pursue you. And so we just, uh, we commit this time to you, Jesus. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. When I was a 
recent graduate from high school, after my, my senior year graduation, my father gave me an incredible graduation present my senior year. I was heading off to college in the fall, and my dad wanted me to have the opportunity to uh, see some of the incredible wonders of the world. And so for uh, five weeks, the summer after graduation, uh, my dad took me on a tour around the world. We spent, uh, we spent a week and a half in Israel. We went down to Cairo, Egypt, and visited the pyramids for four days. We went from Cairo, Egypt, up to uh, Rome, Italy, and visited all the sites there in Rome. We went from Rome up to Paris, France, and visited you know, some of the famous landmarks in Paris. We went from Paris to London, England. Uh, it was really an incredible, incredible tour. And, and really, the, the heart of my dad's goal in that whole trip was to really help me see and experience some of these things that uh, have shaped our worldview as Christians, both, both our biblical worldview, but our historical uh, experience in the Western culture and the various influences that Christianity has had. And it was, uh, it was a great time, something I'll never forget. One of, the, one of the highlights of that trip was the opportunity to go to the Louvre in Paris, France, that, that world-famous museum, which houses some of the world's greatest works of art. This picture that you see here is the uh, chamber that houses uh, the Mona Lisa. And I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, with uh, da Vinci's painting, the Mona Lisa, one of the most famous paintings in the world. And uh, it was an interesting experience going to see the Mona Lisa because uh, you can wait for hours in line just to get into the room to visit the Mona Lisa. And as you can see, the crowds there, uh, the security guards, you know, are funneling through. You, the, you're, you're going through the lines like you're at Disneyland or something. And, and uh, you finally make your way up to the front. And there on the left, you can't see the actual painting there, but there on the left, behind that wood railing, behind a glass security case, is the Mona Lisa. And it's really interesting, friends, seeing and hearing the various people's reactions to this world-famous painting. You know, you see some people who wait for hours in line to get a glimpse of the Mona Lisa, and I heard things like, that's it? We, we waited two hours for this? I heard other people say things like, she's not all that special. <laughs> and then I saw other people who literally wept tears of joy and gratitude, having the opportunity to see this painting that they had studied and, and longed to see in person for years, for lifetimes for some of them. It was really incredible witnessing these different reactions. Some who were just overjoyed and overwhelmed and others who really just took it for granted and didn't think much of it. You know, I was reminded of this scene and this experience this week as I was studying our passage for this morning. In John chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 45 through the opening of chapter 12, we see the aftermath of Jesus' miraculous resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And it's very interesting as we look at our passage this morning because like that experience at the Louvre and the Mona Lisa and the various reactions to it, in our passage this morning we see a very similar phenomenon. We see the reality of people who had the opportunity to see the Son of God, Jesus, God in flesh with their own eyes. 
They, they had the opportunity to, to witness this incredible miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And yet, for those who saw these things and witnessed these things, some of them turned their backs on Jesus. Some of them rejected Jesus, actually plotting against Jesus. And others, others would fall to their knees in praise and adoration of Jesus. It's incredible to realize and think about the different responses to our Savior and Lord that we see throughout the gospel. I want to read our passage this morning. We're picking up in verse 45 of chapter 11 through verse 11 of chapter 12 today, looking at these various responses to this resurrection of Lazarus and in the ministry of Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious ruling body. They gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and believing 
in Jesus. It's very interesting, the various responses that we see here to our Lord and to this incredible sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. In our passage this morning, we we see four pictures in particular, four pictures that reveal to us the, the clarity and power of the gospel, but also the contrasting responses of the human heart to it. I I want us to focus in on these four pictures this morning to get a fuller picture of of both our, our salvation, the gospel, but also the way that we as men and women can respond to Jesus. The first of these pictures that we see right at the outset of our passage this morning is an expedient plot, an expedient plot. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, friends, we're, we're on the road to Calvary here. Here in our passage this morning, we find ourselves less than a week away from the cross, from the crucifixion. And as we come to the end of chapter 11, John reveals the deceitful plot that will eventually culminate in the tragedy of that first Good Friday and the triumph of that first Easter Sunday. In verses 45 through 48, John shares this plot. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and will take away both our place and our nation. So here we get to the heart of what was really going on in the the Jewish religious leaders' opposition to Jesus. People often wonder, what was it about Jesus that, that caused these Jewish religious authorities? These were the, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. What was it that caused so many of them to miss out on Jesus, the Messiah? Well, friends, the answer to that question is simply this. It was their prideful resistance to the ministry of Jesus and their self-centered desire for position and power. See, the the council that John talks about, the Jewish Sanhedrin, it it was made up of two camps of Jewish religious leaders. You you had the Pharisees, and and the Pharisees are the group that we've seen most so far in the Gospel of John in their interactions and opposition to Jesus. And and Jesus opposed the Pharisees because of their self-righteous, legalistic keeping of the law. They thought that what made them, uh, that brought them into favor with God was their zealous keeping of the Old Testament laws. And so they had their long checklist of do's and don'ts, and they made sure that they kept the law perfectly, even going above and beyond what was required in the law to their own man-made traditions built upon the law, all done with the goal of trying to earn God's favor, earn God's approval. And throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus repeatedly confront them over this error, that we're not saved through the keeping of the law. The law was given to reveal our sin and our need for a Savior and just how far short we fall of God's holy, righteous standards. But the Pharisees didn't see that, and so they opposed Jesus. And then we have the other group that made up the Sanhedrin, the the majority group at this time, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, these were people 
who view Jesus as a threat to their power, to their authority. You see, the Sadducees were the elite, wealthy, ruling class among the Jews. These were the ones who had uh, conspired with the Romans to maintain their power and their authority even under the Roman occupation. And they viewed Jesus as a threat because they thought that if more people start following Jesus, that he's going to start a revolution and the Roman Empire is going to come down on us and they're going to take our power away and conquer our whole nation. And so they were really concerned about losing their political power. But you know, it's really interesting. What was really going on at the heart of this opposition? What what was the spiritual issue here? See, one of the most important lessons that we can learn this morning from these Jewish authorities, and they're missing out on Jesus. Friends, one of the most important lessons we can learn is that it is fully possible to be religious, but still lost. Did you know that? It's fully possible to be a very religious person and still be far from God. You can know the Bible and yet be ignorant of its message. You can be completely immersed in the things of God and and in the people of God and yet have a heart that's living in rebellion against God. How does this happen? Well, friends, it happens when we put our glory before God's. This is really the oldest sin in the book. It's the sin of pride. What got Lucifer kicked out of heaven? One of God's most beautiful, grandest angels. What got Lucifer kicked out of heaven? It was pride. He wanted the glory for himself, not for God. What was it that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? It was pride. They wanted the glory. They wanted their eyes to be open. They they bought the lie that if they ate of the fruit, they too would be like God. They wanted the glory, not God. And, And they lost their position in Eden, in paradise. Friends, understand, pride is is at the heart of so many of our sins. Pride is really about choosing our priorities and our interests and our agendas over God's. And the fruit of pride is always rotten. So often we think that our choices and our desires and fulfilling our needs are what are going to bring us joy and happiness and pleasure and peace. And it reminds me of the the apple I ate earlier this week, this beautiful red apple. I mean, it looked just gorgeous. And I took a bite and inside it was brown and rotten. That's the way pride works, friends, when we pursue our desires above God's, our glory above God's. And like the religious authorities in our passage this morning, our sinful pride doesn't always manifest itself in outright rebellion. Okay? Oftentimes, more often, it rears its ugly head in the form of deceitful self-justification. Deceitful self-justification. We try to justify our sin and our rebellion. Aren't we so prone to do that, friends? Look at Caiaphas' speech here in verses 48 through 50. 
Caiaphas stands up. He was the high priest that year. He says to the council, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What was Caiaphas doing here? Deceitful self-justification. He's trying to justify their rebellion against Jesus. Here are the religious authorities, they wanted to kill Jesus, but they knew he was innocent. But because he was a threat to their position and power, it was the politically expedient thing for them to do. Let's just get rid of this guy. But you see, they needed some excuse to justify killing Jesus. And so Caiaphas here begins to justify why killing Jesus isn't all that bad. In fact, he actually goes on and argues it's a good thing. Killing Jesus will be a good thing because it'll allow us to keep our authority, which is the best thing for our nation. And and if we're in charge, we can lead our people well and the Romans won't come down and overthrow the whole country. See, they were really in it for themselves. And they were looking for an excuse to, to guard their power, guard their authority. Now, you know something, friends, it's very easy for us this morning to recognize the sin and error of the Jewish authorities here. But it's not so easy for us to acknowledge our own sin and error. It's not so easy for us to recognize our own hard-hearted attempts at self-justification. It's really easy to recognize when other people are doing this. But how quick we are to turn a blind eye to our own efforts to justify our rebellion against God. We, we say things like, well, God, God wants me to be happy. And, and so, so I deserve this. I, I've earned this. I, I'm owed this. And, and we try to justify our sin. Many of us have followed the, the sad story this past year of Ravi Zacharias one of the great Christian apologists and evangelists of the last 50 years. Ravi passed away this last May, but subsequent to his death, revelations started coming out that Ravi had been involved in sexual misconduct, sexually harassing women at a massage parlor that he owned. These women who were harassed and abused by Ravi reported that he would say things like, I need this stress relief. I work so hard for the ministry. Sinful self-justification. And it's not just the big-name people like Caiaphas and Ravi that are guilty of these kinds of things. We do this stuff all the time. I remember speaking to an individual who was in the midst of walking away from their marriage, walking out on their spouse, Counseling this individual, you know, how, how can you do this? this? This isn't biblical. This isn't God's will. And, and this individual said, well, I, I'm not very fulfilled in my marriage right now, and God wants me to be happy. Friends, God does want you to be happy. But he also wants you to be holy. And any time we choose our way over God's, it is sin, Period. And when we do this, we're no different from the Jewish authorities who plotted the very death of Jesus. 
We reveal ourselves to be hard-hearted sinners, more committed to our glory than God's glory. And friends, understand this. Choosing our way over God's, it never leads to blessing. You can't expect God's blessing when you're living your life in rebellion against Him. He won't bless that. But here's the good news, friends. See, we have reason to to give thanks and praise the Lord because even in our hard-hearted rebellion against Him, even in our sin against Him, this is where the hope of the gospel makes all the difference. The gospel changes everything for us. This is the second picture we see in our passage in verses 51 through 52. We find an effective plan, an effective plan, God's plan for our salvation. The famous Protestant reformer Martin Luther is credited with saying that God can strike a heavy blow with a crooked stick. God can strike a heavy blow with a crooked stick. And in verses 51 through 52, John reveals that God did just that through the prophetic words of Caiaphas. Listen to what the high priest says here. And he doesn't even realize what he's saying, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Caiaphas is actually prophesying God's plan of salvation before the ages began. In verses 51 through 52, Caiaphas says to the Sanhedrin, Nor do you understand, it is better for you that one man should die for the people... Not that the whole nation should perish. And then John adds, he did not say this of his own accord. This was the Holy Spirit inspiring Caiaphas to say this. Caiaphas thought he was saying one thing. He was really saying something completely different. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, John reveals to us here that Caiaphas's words were really a prophetic explanation of what would be at the very heart of the gospel message, proclaimed now for over 2,000 years. Well, what's at the heart of the gospel message that, that Caiaphas first revealed here? At the very heart of the gospel is the promise that one man would die for the people. And we know that that man was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Peter explained this just a few short weeks after the resurrection, standing in the midst of Jerusalem, proclaiming to the Jewish people after Christ had died and resurrected and ascended to heaven. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, he explains what Caiaphas previewed for us here. He explains, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone 
whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Friends, this is exactly what Caiaphas prophesied. It is better for you that one man should die for the nation. And then John explains, but it wasn't just for the nation. It was for all God's children scattered abroad that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. The Apostle Paul, he explains this to his protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul explains again Caiaphas' prophecy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, friends, Caiaphas was simply prophesying what would be at the very heart of the gospel message. This is the same gospel that we proclaim here today, 2,000 years later, that one man died on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ came as the perfect substitute, the spotless Lamb of God who took away our sins. I came across a great story this week, a story told by uh, Chuck, Cole, uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll, the great pastor Chuck Swindoll. He, he shares a story from a missionary who works at Kajabi Medical Mission in, in Kenya. It's the story of an eight-year-old girl there in Kenya, a girl named Monica. And Monica had fallen into a pit and broke her leg. And, and another woman from her village, a, a woman named Mama Nigeri, came by and found Monica in this pit. And so this woman, Mama Nigeri, climbed down into the pit to rescue Monica. And as they were coming up out of the pit, a deadly, poisonous black mamba snake bit both Mama Nigeri and Monica, one of the most deadly vipers in the world. Monica was taken to the hospital and admitted and Mama Najeri went home and that evening she died from the snake's poison. The next day at the medical center one of the missionary nurses shared the news with Monica that, that Mama Najeri had died. And she explained to her that when the snake bit Mama Najeri the snake took all of the Mama Najeri took all of the poison from the snake's bite so that when the snake then bit Monica, there was no poison left. This medical missionary shared with Monica that this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus took the bite of sin and death for us. He, he took all of the poison of our sin upon himself the poison that leads to our death and our eternal separation from God. He took the poison so that we could live. This young girl put her trust in Jesus as her Savior and Lord. You know, friends, we will experience the bite of sin in this world. But Jesus took our poison. Isn't that good news? That's the promise of the gospel. The third picture we see here in our passage this morning in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, we, we find an extravagant praise, an extravagant praise. 
We, we've seen so far the actions of the Jewish authorities and, and this ugly picture of how the heart, hardened by sin, seeks its own will over God's will. But, but now, as we turn to chapter 12, we also find a contrasting picture of the heart that's humbled before God, the, the heart that's receptive to God, and, and we see here what a beautiful thing that is. In fact, here in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, we find one of the most beautiful pictures of praise in the entire Bible. John tells us that Jesus and his disciples have returned to Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, shortly after having raised Lazarus from the dead. And and as you would expect, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they, they throw a party for Jesus. They, they throw a celebration feast for Jesus. I mean, he just raised our brother back to life. The, the Gospel of Mark tells us that the feast actually took place at the home of Simon the leper, another man that Jesus had healed. Friends, can you imagine that dinner conversation? I mean, how cool would that have been, right? I mean, here's Simon the leper, and my fingers were all falling off, and my flesh was falling off my face, my nose had been gone for two years, and, and then you'll never believe it. Jesus spoke a word, and and my fingers grew back, and and my nose grew back, and my flesh grew back, and then Lazarus chimes in, ah, that's nothing. I was dead. Four days. And Jesus spoke a word, Lazarus, come out. I mean, just imagine what a scene that dinner party would have been. But John records that in the midst of this dinner party, Mary steps forward. Lazarus' sister, in this incredible act of humility and honor and praise to Jesus, Mary comes forward with a 12-ounce jar of nard, pure nard. It's, it's a perfume made from the spike nard plant, which is only found in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in India. Judas goes on to tell us that this spikenard was worth 300 denarii. That was the equivalent of a year's salary for the average person in Israel at this time. Mary brings out this jar of precious perfume, her greatest treasure, and she gets on her knees and she pours it over Jesus' feet and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her very hair and the ultimate act of humble worship and adoration. What an incredible, incredible and beautiful act of praise. Mary gave her greatest treasure to Jesus. Why? It was because her heart was overflowing with joy at what Jesus had done for her and her family. There's another person in this story, though, that is a great example to us. See, Mary often gets all the acclaim in the story, but... Martha, Martha's often given short shrift here. See, see, Mary gave Jesus her greatest treasure, but Martha gives Jesus her greatest talent. Here in our passage, John tells us that Martha was the one preparing this special celebration meal for Jesus and his disciples. Seventeen people at this party. Simon the leper. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus and his 12 disciples. Ladies, is it easy to prepare a meal for 17 people in a kitchen with all our modern-day conveniences? Not at all, is it? Imagine 
working over an open fire all day to prepare the best meal you can for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was Martha. So here we find Mary giving Jesus her greatest treasure. We see Martha giving Jesus her greatest talent. What a difference in attitude with Martha here between what we see in this passage and what we see of her in Luke chapter 10 at another dinner party. Remember, Mary, her sister, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach while Martha is serving the food. And Martha pulls Jesus aside and starts complaining to Jesus, right? Jesus, I'm doing all the work here. Mary's just sitting around listening. And Jesus says there in Luke 10 to to Martha that Mary has chosen the better thing. And here in John, John chapter 12, we don't see Mary or Martha complaining about serving the food, do we? She's not complaining anymore. What changed? Her circumstances didn't change. Her heart changed. She saw the joy in serving Jesus. See, she saw it as an act of worship, her service of Jesus. And what a contrasting picture we see between the beautiful actions of these two faithful sisters and Judas. Here's Judas at this same party. Judas, who feigns concern for the poor. Mary, how could you waste, you know, this expensive perfume? We could have sold this for the poor. But John tells us he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was dipping into the money purse, lining his own pockets. You know, when you think about these three examples, Mary, Martha, Judas, I want to encourage you this morning, friends, What does the testimony of your life and actions speak today? When when, when people look at your life, are you living for Jesus? Are, Are you giving your best to Jesus? Or are you, like Judas, just putting on a facade this morning? You know, maybe you're here today and Outwardly, you look like a follower of Jesus. You talk like a follower of Jesus. But in your life and actions, you're robbing Jesus of his glory. You know, let me suggest this morning that maybe this passage today is God's wake-up call for you. Maybe God is challenging you this morning to consider, do I want to live like Mary and Martha, a life of extravagant praise? Or am I going to live like Judas, a life of empty promise? See, friends, it all depends on your focus. Is your heart turned inward or upward? Is your focus on me or on he? You see, when our focus is on Jesus and all that he's done for us, the natural outflow of that is going to be a life characterized by praise. That's why we need to keep looking to Jesus, friends. That's why we need to keep our hearts focused on the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, was once asked by a congregant, why are you always preaching the gospel? He said, because you're always forgetting it. Friends, we got to keep our eyes and our hearts set on Christ. The final picture we see in our passage this morning, we see an everyman proof. An everyman proof. 
Here in this final picture in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, we discover that it wasn't just Jesus that the religious authorities were after, but they were also plotting against Lazarus. Why were they plotting against Lazarus? Well, friends, Lazarus had become a threat by virtue of his living testimony to the power and authority of Jesus. You see, Lazarus had gone from the tomb to the table. Isn't that a great image? What a great picture of our salvation. Lazarus has gone from the tomb to the table. Every single one of us here this morning who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we also have gone from the tomb to the table. Jesus has raised us up from death to life. He, he's brought us from residency in the grave to reclining in fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great picture Lazarus is. It's interesting when you think about Lazarus, though. You know, Did you know, friends, that there's no other mention of Lazarus anywhere in the Gospels? Outside of John 11 and 12 here, we, we, we have no other mention of Lazarus. In fact, we have no other accounts from his life. We don't know anything that he ever said or did. And yet, he's one of the most influential people in the history of Christianity. And why is that? It's not because of anything he did. It's all because of what Jesus did for him. Isn't that so true, friends? Every single one of us here this morning, we have nothing to give ourselves any praise or glory over. We're not here because we're something special. We're here because he's something special. We're here because of what Jesus has done for us. Lazarus here is a testament to the reality that God does miraculous things through everyday ordinary people. And the greatest miracle of all is how God brings the spiritually dead back to life. And so let me tell you this morning, friends, if you've been born again, if you've been saved to new life through Jesus Christ, friends, you are a living, breathing testament to the reality that God is in the resurrection business. Every one of us is a living proof to the power of the gospel. But you know something? There's also a lesson for us here in the opposition to Lazarus. You see, the powers of this fallen world they don't want to see people experience new life in Christ. They don't want to hear about the reality of us being born again. They, they can't tolerate the evidence of the resurrection power that lives within us. Why? Because it reminds them that they're still dead. Why is Christianity persecuted all over the world today? Why are we facing so much opposition even increasingly in our culture today? It's because the world that doesn't know Jesus is dead. They don't have life. John told us in chapter 1, verse 4, in him is life, and that life is the light of men. And this is why, friends, we need to put our resurrection life on display for all to see. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, God calls us to live out our 
resurrection power as we go out into the world to show the world that there is a God who raises dead people to new life. And every single one of us here this morning has the opportunity this week to be a living, breathing testament to God's resurrection power. Will you do that, friends? Will you be that testimony to the world to know that there is hope, there is life, there is resurrection found in Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this beautiful story and the ways that it reveals the various responses of the human heart to Jesus. Lord, we, we know that we live in a fallen, sinful world and so many people today are lost in their sin. They're blinded by their sin. And they're living like, like the Jewish religious authorities in rebellion against you like Judas in rebellion against you because they're seeking their glory over your glory. They may not even realize that that's what they're doing, but, but every time we choose against you and for ourselves, we are putting ourselves up as little gods above the one true God of the universe. And then we have the other option that we see in our passage, those who chose to honor you with joyful praise and humble servants and hearts of overflowing gratitude for how you are the giver of life. You are the one who, who raises the dead to new life. And Jesus, I just pray that we ourselves this morning would have that same priority, that same focus, that same vision of who you are and all that you've done for us and that in looking at you and looking to the hope of the gospel that we would be inspired to honor you with our praise and our service and give you our greatest treasure and our greatest talents. May we make you our priority, Jesus. And in living that way, may we show a lost and dying world that there is a living God who raises the dead. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from Jude, verses 1 and 2. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Have a blessed week, everyone. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.